Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars and today is Saturday, March 18th, 2023. And I would like to apologize and beg pardon in advance if you're hearing kind of like a like an um like a motor in the background. Um I've been checking my wires and my other apparatus and listening to things in the room and outside of the room and I cannot locate where that sound is coming from. So I hope um, I hope it's not so distracting that you can't listen to the episode. Please let me know if that is the case. I'm going to do some test runs before I um, upload this to the public, but let me know if the sound quality is good. And then I'll have to do further investigating. Anyway, we will be um, in a quiet and meaningful way. Today we are observing our 100th episode of Mars Messina Presents. So I would like to thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback and your support. The show is only good or will get better with feedback and support. Every word, every dime you send our way is duly noted and more appreciated than our limited linguistic array can possibly convey. Thank you. So moving on to the episode portion of the episode, uh, I would like to present to you what I sometimes call the school of common sense. Other times I call it the school of true living. And I have even called this the school of self-reliance. This kind of idea I have. Anyway, uh, and I think other people have this idea too. What happens is we reach adulthood and we find that there are everyday tasks that we endure and that we have to endure. Um, and the execution thereof is something we call adulting, paying bills, fixing and repairing things around the house or in our vehicles, uh, balancing a checkbook. And we wonder why, why didn't they teach this in school? It's like you have to self-teach yourself along the way when you are an adult. So a lot of us come into adulthood really kind of unprepared. And this is a most vital subject that just might require two episodes. So we're gonna see how we're doing on time Plus, I'm going to be taking some water and tea breaks because I caught another virus. <clears throat> anyway, let's just see how we do on time. Um, and I might extend this subject to next week as well. So just be advised that this might be part one. We'll see how we do on time. Anyway, would you believe that once upon a time and for a short time, Schools really did teach real-life skills. They really did. And I'm going to address that right now. In a nutshell, school was a place where you learned either a profession or a trade of your choice and 
along with that, and it was mandatory, you also learned liberal arts. School was one place that taught both how to conduct yourself in business and in the economy, and also how to conduct yourself in civil society. Now, of course, times being what they were, these kinds of school were mainly open to white males, although the daughters of wealthy men sometimes got a chance to enroll as well. It was believed, as we believe now, that an individual must work for a living and learn expertise in a field of one's choice to be a productive member of society. And at the same time, that potential worker was also a social creature. And so during the weekends and the evenings, they needed to know how to hold civil conversations at dinners, at parties, at church, and out and around, uh, around town. So um, the idea of being a successful um, contributing member of society was not only working, but how you played, if you will. Now, somewhere along the line, as we know, trades and professions became detached from liberal arts, and the liberal arts became something of their own. In fact, right now, you've heard the jokes. The liberal arts are actually seen as joke diplomas, as useless degrees, and a waste of money. People roll their eyes and ask why anyone would want to earn a degree in basket weaving. And I roll my eyes at them. This is both a myopic and a tragic view of liberal arts. So let's talk about the liberal arts. Let's talk about its history as a collective in our hallowed halls of learning and how STEM, or a STEM, um, STEM of course stands for science, technology, engineering, and math, how a STEM education is enhanced by a combination study of the liberal arts. So let's go all the way back in history in our time machine. I hope you have a time portal in your room because we're going back. Um, and <clears throat> liberal arts education, a liberal arts education dates back to classical antiquity. Stemming from the Latin word liberalis, meaning appropriate for free men, a liberal arts education was a course of study considered essential for free citizens of Greece and Rome. In the minds of the ancient Greeks and Romans, a liberal arts education was necessary for a human being to be free. Believe it or not, believe this or not, vocational or technical studies were often thought to be best fit for non-free members of society or slaves. To those fortunate enough to be awarded a liberal arts education, their <clears throat> education emphasized civic duty and the development of the, um, you know, if you want to call it the soul or the whole human being to reach its full potential through the study of grammar, 
rhetoric and logic and argument. The liberal arts were originally those disciplines deemed by the ancient Greeks to be essential preparation for effective participation in public life. Grammar, logic, rhetoric, like I said, were regarded as the core liberal arts, along with arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy playing a secondary but still important role or roles. This model inspired the early European universities and although grammar in the European universities, the grammar taught was Latin and not Greek. <clears throat> By the end of the Renaissance, other subjects had been added to this core. So there was Latin grammar, but then, then there was Greek grammar, history, moral philosophy, and poetry. Even as special, specialization at the undergraduate level was embraced in some countries from the 19th century onwards, some vestige of liberal arts persisted. Well into the second half, half of the 20th century, competence in Latin and Greek was an admissions requirement for matriculation of all students at some of the elite universities. For example, um, Oxford and Cambridge, you had to study Latin or Greek. And that was until not too long ago. And I know my mother studied Latin. Um, so like I said, this was not too long ago. And what that afforded her was to be able to pretty much look at any word and chop it down to its root, which was usually in Latin, and she could figure out the meaning of the word that way, an English word. A liberal arts education also takes root in the Socratic method, um, the Socratic method being named after the famous Greek philosopher, philosopher Socrates. Socrates used a unique method of teaching in a question and dialogue format that challenged students to support their arguments and to stimulate critical thinking. In modern liberal arts colleges today, uh, they typically employ the Socratic teaching method, which emphasizes discussion and feedback and open-ended questions. Like Socrates, who encouraged debate among his students, the faculty's role in a modern liberal arts institution is to engage students in this creative process and encourage interaction and encourage debate. This style of teaching is very different from large public universities whose primary engagement is passive learning through lecture and rote memorization. It has its uses, I'm not saying that it doesn't, but it's limited. So, we must ask ourselves, what knowledge and skills do we need to be a critically engaged citizen? A simple answer to that is critical thinking. 
It's a simple answer, but it's an essential one. Most liberal education programs aim to develop critical thinking skills. Students will analyze and criticize a range of concepts and materials, develop the ability to approach new ideas with confidence. Graduates from these programs often seek roles where they can make new interventions. In addition to the arts, they may be working in technology, politics, charity, academia, or a traditional profession. Liberal education, as already discussed, was the primary educational structure at the great medieval universities across Europe. Traditionally, there are seven subjects that make up the liberal arts. The trivium of humanities, which are or were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And then there were the scientific quadrivium, which were astronomy and, astro and, and it was a combination of astrology and astronomy. Music, geometry, and arithmetic. Scientific. Music is scientific. Astrology, scientific. Together, 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 the um, trivium and the uh, quadrivium, the seven arts contributed to the overarching art and philosophy modes. And that was your basic education. In the 19th century, European universities shifted to a more focused, specialized approach that might seem more familiar to us today. Students studied to become experts at one single thing to the detriment of everything else going on in their lives. Um, they were very focused on this one thing. Degrees recognized achievement in specific subjects such as medicine and law. They became training grounds for limited numbers of professions because how many doctors can you have? How many lawyers can you have before you flood a market? And who could afford those degrees as well? After the American Revolution, the liberal arts made another appearance in the schools as education became a tool to unite the country through standardized spelling and pronunciation, as well as through lessons on patriotism and religion. The Founding Fathers recognized that democracy requires an informed populace. I'm going to say that again. Democracy requires an informed populace. So they set aside federal land for states joining the Union under the condition that some of that land go to public schools. Okay, that's how... That's how important public schools were to the men who created the United States of America. There were calls for mandatory free public education. Um, and that is the paradigm that still stands today. 
we do have free public education that we must um, bolster up. U.S. President Thomas Jefferson, um, I believe he was our third president, he believed education was essential to create responsible citizens, just like the Founding Fathers had said. Um, he was of that school of thought as well. Jefferson had big goals for education in the United States. Uh, he wanted to see a broad educational system that provided primary grade instruction to both boys and girls. Jefferson wanted students to then go to secondary schools and even universities. In 1819, he established the University of Virginia. Jefferson believed education was necessary for preserving democratic rights when he said, whenever the people are well informed, they can be trusted with their own government. Now, I think we can agree that it's a wonderful maxim, but does that still exist today in a real, everyday, workaday way? Hmm. On April 23rd, 1635, the Boston Latin School opened as America's first public school. A desire for the federal government's involvement in education followed the school's opening. And where did that desire come from? From the federal government. Later, Horace Mann, a government official, helped establish the Massachusetts Board of Education. In 1837, he became Massachusetts first secretary of the Board of Education. Horace Mann was a, propon a proponent of universal education. Furthermore, he believed everyone should have a standardized common education, which led to his, in quote, common school movement. This plan called for everyone to receive an education, regardless of whether or not they could pay for it. Man called education, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, man called education, quote, the free, or I'm sorry, the great equalizer of the conditions of men. So see, all these early pioneer, pioneering minds, I mean, why did they leave the nations they left in the first place? Because they wanted us all to be free, and what frees us is education. So like many before man, he thought America would be more likely to maintain its democracy through education. Man further believed that the schools needed to be non-sectarian, having no religious affiliation, and that they ought to teach general values that would then enable students to make their own choices sectarian, religious, or not. Common school advocates emphasized the knowledge, civic, and economic benefits of public schooling. Common schools would teach the three R's, which we all know as reading, writing, and arithmetic. 
along with other subjects such as history, geometry, grammar, and rhetoric. Now, having said that, I'm alarmed that today um, some of our politicians want to privatize all schools. Um, you can argue for or against it, but I think, generally speaking, it would be to our downfall. Anyway, a strong dose of moral instruction would also be provided to instill civic virtues. Educating children of the poor and middle classes would prepare them to obtain good jobs. Proponents argued also that that would thereby strengthen the nation's economic position. So again, it's that idea of we are only as strong as our weakest citizen. I think that is a really wise way to think about our nation. We are only as strong as our weakest citizen. Okay. Um, so all of this, <clears throat> and in addition to preparing students for citizenship and work, education was seen by some reformers as a means for people to achieve happiness and fulfillment. And when you are completely 100% engaged in your society and you're pursuing something, some goals um, that you have aspirations to um, that make you excited, yes, you are much more fulfilled and much more happy. And if a lot more people were also fulfilled and happy, there's less crime. There's less downfall to society. Common schools were also proposed as a way to, pro um, to promote... Uh, <laughs> okay, common schools, this, this method that man came up with, they were also proposed as a way to promote cohesion across social classes and improve social outcomes. So in many ways today, we are in a class warfare. They don't call it that. You know, they'll call it like Republicans against Democrats, conservatives against liberals, blacks against whites. Mm -mm. There is um, a class warfare going on right now being waged. Um, and if we were smart and we were educated, all of us, we would see right through it. Anyway, advocates saw universal education as a means to eliminate poverty, crime, and other social problems. Some early leaders argued that the cost um, or costs of properly educating children in public schools would be far less than the expenses of punishing and jailing criminals and coping with problems stemming from poverty. Today, the, um, the um, not imprisonment, what's the word I'm looking for? Incarceration. Incarceration is actually an industry in which you can make gobs of money. And it shouldn't be this way. So that's what happened. I mean, you know, at first, 
properly educating children in public schools was cheaper than punishing and jailing them. But now people are making money off of the prison system. However, what I just said remains true. If you properly educate a child, they will be far less likely to go to prison. They will be far less likely to suffer from poverty, which would draw them to crime. Okay, so having said that, let's look at our current situation in the U.S. Although the U.S. only represents 5% of the world's population, one quarter of all the world's prisoners are American in American jails. And 3% of the world's population has been to jail or prison at one time. Let those numbers boggle your mind. Now, according to JSTOR, which is a highly trusted and used, highly used journalistic storage source, a large body of research shows that spending some time in prison or jail does not lower the risk that someone will re-offend. It does not. Many states spend $27,000 more per prisoner than they do per student. To show the correlation between imprisonment and education, high school dropouts are three and a half more three and a half times more likely than high school graduates to be arrested in their lifetimes. Furthermore, over 70% of inmates in the United States cannot read above a fourth grade level. 70%. See a correlation there? Anyway, let's get back to the history of public schools in America. Um, the earliest public schools in the United States did not focus on academics like math or reading. Instead, they taught the virtues of family, religion, and community. And, and, and that's very understandable because they were still building society. By 1900... 31 states had compulsory school attendance for students from ages 8 to 14. By 1918, every state required students to complete elementary school. The idea of a progressive education, educating the child to reach his full potential and actively promoting and participating in a democratic society, that idea began in the late 1800s and became widespread by the 1930s. John Dewey is probably a name you know. Uh, John Dewey was the founder of this progressive education movement. As stated, 
liberal arts pathways now fall under a barrage of criticism. Along the way somewhere, focus shifted towards science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, as well as skilled trades and fields. Water break. This focus was primarily grounded in the perception that the so-called softer degrees across interdisciplinary sciences had less applicability in the economic landscape because now money is king. But the liberal arts focused on the very employability skills and high demand in our complex adaptive economy. That remains true. You know, you might have this school skill, but does that necessarily make you employable? For example, can you take constructive criticism? Can you come up with your own ideas? Can you solve problems on the fly? That's all liberal arts education. So, um, again, in order to be able to function in a high demand um, landscape, if you will, creativity, problem solving, teamwork, critical thinking, etc., are highly valued by employers today. And that, my friends, is liberal arts. That's how you're going to learn to think, how to think, not what to think. Recently, the mix of liberal arts with skilled trades and career and technical certificates as well as STEM pathways has been implemented. And as a result, this is creating a new agile graduate. Now, our problem is that the costs of advanced schooling and the exorbitant student loan interest rates are keeping our young people. They are keeping them away from universities and colleges. And so people are like, well, well, you know, just go do a trade. Sure, yeah, go ahead. And many are. Many are opting for trades. But that's going to create a flood in the market. So everybody becomes plumbers or electricians. So what happens is you have a flood in the market because everybody's a, a plumber or a, an electrician. And that makes you unemployable. And it also cheapens the ones the you know um they don't have to pay them as much they'll probably you know drop pay for the ones that that do have jobs who are lucky enough to get a job and then even more alarmingly how many doctors are we going to have when it's only the wealthy who can go to school and pay for it but how many of those people are, are going to be doctors and so when people you know, when they put, you know, hold their noses, when we hear about this student loan crisis and they don't want the student loans forgiven because they had to pay their loans back. Well, I had to pay my loans back too. But you know what? What you're ignoring is the absolute scam that schooling has become and that the interest rates are criminal. They tell you 
when you're sitting in um, an admissions office, they tell you, oh, yeah, take out the loan. It's going to be the easiest loan you've ever paid, $50 a month. And then when you get the loan, after you've graduated, your bill is for 365 And then the month after that, it's 635 And you're wondering, what the hell is going on here? There must be a mistake. And there's no mistake. You know, um, they're just basing that off the interest you already accrued. So people, when they start paying their loans back, they're paying on the interest and not even the main body of what it was that they borrowed. And then that's it. Then they go upside down on those loans and then they can't take out credit. They can't buy a house. They can't buy a car. And therefore, they won't have a family. Or they don't take out a loan at all. And they just work and work and work and cannot buy a house, cannot buy, you know, get a family, build a family. And our, our whole society is going to crumble because of that. So let's rethink a little bit of, oh, just go get a trade and flood the markets. That is crazy thinking that you're not even thinking to the end, your end result. You have to envision the end result of all this. Off the soapbox. Okay. Yeah, this is probably going to definitely turn into a two-part episode. Moving along. <clears throat> Harvard Business Review reported on a book called Sense and Sensibility. And in this case, sense is spelled C-E-N-T-S. Sense and Sensibility what economics can learn from the humanities by Northwestern University professors Gary Saul Morrison and Morton Shapiro. Harvard Business Review explains that in this book, quote, they argue that when economic models fall short, they do so, they do so for want of human understanding. People don't exist in a vacuum, and treating them as if they do is both reductive and potentially harmful. Human skills, such as leadership, communications, and problem solving, are applied differently across different fields. This report believes that it's not about choosing between STEM or liberal arts, we must choose both and live and thrive in both. These researchers specifically believe that the most valuable workers are those who are able to combine, combine these different sets of skills, something that AI cannot do, something that a machine cannot do. In the spirit of this history and research, I would like to add some of my own ideas. I'd like to open up a public school, and not just for children, but to um, also offer adult education courses and even family courses. And again, like I said, um, we can call this the School of Common Sense or the School of True Living or even the School of Self-Reliance. And I have a lot of ideas, 
which means I might wait until next week to go over them. Yep, I think I'm going to do that. So I think I'm going to kind of sort of end right here. Okay, so what I'm doing, I'm just marking in my notes, my trusty little notes, that I have to continue this idea right about, right about here. Okay, there. I am going to now close the ideas or the the episode today um, with bedtime stories from the acoustic bookshelf. Here is an excerpt from The Once and Future King by T.H. White. The best thing for being sad, replied Merlin, beginning to puff and blow, is to learn something that's the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anatomies. You may lie awake at night listening to the disorder of your veins. You may miss your only love. You may see the world about you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor has been trampled in the sewers of baser minds. There is only one thing for it then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by. never fear or distrust and never dream of regretting. Learning is the only thing for you. Look what a lot of things there are to learn. Until next week, arrivederci.